Hello, everyone. Joe here, uh, here to introduce the Commentarian Special Features uh, bonus episode uh, as sort of a sneak peek uh, into the kind of things we're going to be providing to Patreon subscribers. So I wanted to jump on before we started the episode to kind of talk to you about our Patreon, patreon.com slash the commentarians. Uh, we have really, really uh, affordable tiers for you guys, but let me uh, talk about why we're doing it. We're providing this podcast uh, for free, and the reason we do we're doing it is because we love doing uh, this podcast. We love the idea about talking about movies and talking about how they intersect with faith and how we should respond to them. We just really, really love the idea of this podcast, so we do it, and we don't mind doing it for free. But the fact is, is that it does cost us money. It costs us money to run the website. It costs us money to uh, to for the web hosting. Uh, it costs us money. Sometimes we have to buy DVDs or rent movies off of Amazon uh, with money out of our pockets. Again, totally fine. Uh, it's what we signed up for. But what we wanted to do is ask you guys, the fans, if you could, uh, uh, if you have a little extra change uh, lying around the house. If you would, uh, pre we would much appreciate it if you kicked it towards us. Uh, and if you do so, we will provide you with great bonus content uh, that uh, you shouldn't miss. So let me tell you about what those things are. So at patreon.com slash the commentarians, uh, we, uh, for $1 a month, it's super affordable. You get a thank you on the air. Plus... Uh, you get uh, to join the uh, Raven Creek Social Club Facebook group. It's a private group for only those who donated to the Patreon, and you will there you will meet uh, fans of the of our sister podcast, Faith and Other Oddities, and uh, fans of the Commentarians. You get to meet other commies, uh, and there you will be able to discuss faith and movies and stuff that you've been thinking about. Me, Nathan, and Emily are a part of that podcast, so you get to interact with us directly there. It's going be a real fun place it's called uh raven creek paddle store so that's what uh, emily and nathan decided to call it i think it's really funny when you find out what we mean by that uh, i think uh, you're going to enjoy it uh so that's what you get for one dollar a month now for two dollars a month you get this what you're hearing now not me rambling like mumbling and stuttering and all that no no but uh the for two dollars a month you get the bonus episodes it's a podcast called the commentarians special features and every month we're going to do a, a bonus episode at the end of the month where we either interview a special guest or we talk uh or i talk with one of the other hosts about specific topics um or we just do fun stuff so for example in for december uh, the guest for that month, that month, me and her are going, oop, I almost gave it away. Gave it a little bit of a clue there, but, uh, me and my, that guest, we're going to do a special Christmas episode for the month of December. And then we got like uh, great ideas for stuff we're going to talk about in the future. We're going to do an episode on our favorite film, uh, movie soundtracks. We're going to do an episode where we do a commentary track on television shows, uh, we're going to do episodes where, oh, I'm actually trying to line up uh, a special guest. I'm trying to get a documentary, uh, an Oscar-winning documentary filmmaker on the podcast. I'm lining it up right now. So far, so good. I'm not sure. It's not, you know, it's not set up yet, but uh, fingers crossed. Let's hope he gets, uh, I could get him. But again, these are the kinds of things that we're going to be doing uh, as a bonus episode for only $2 a month. It's really, really affordable. It's not much out of your pocket, but it helps us out tremendously, and we would really, really appreciate it. Uh, so this episode, this is a sneak peek of the kind of thing that you're going to be getting there. So this is an interview I did with uh, the host of More Than One Lesson, the podcast, and uh, he's actually, it's also a website where Christians review film. And we talk about what the job of a critic is, what makes a good critic versus a bad critic, uh, why critics are actually good for the movie industry, how they actually uh, help and are kind of advocates for the consumer. 
Um, and so it's a really, really great conversation. And like I said, this is the kind of thing that you're going to get if you join the Patreon. Uh, so uh, head on over there, patreon.com slash the commentarians. Uh, enough, enough talking. Let's just get into the episode. Hope we see you there. Bye. Uh, welcome, everybody, to Special Features, the uh, bonus episode for the Commentarians. Uh, I have a very special guest with me this uh, this month, uh, Tyler Smith. How you doing? I'm not bad. How are you? I can't complain. Uh, Tyler Smith from the More Than One Lesson podcast and website and the Battleship Retention website and podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell us about More Than One Lesson and Battleship Retention. So Battleship Retention uh, has been going since March 2007. Um, We've recorded over 600 episodes, uh, and I just host it with my uh, friend David, and we talk about movies, not just recent movies, but also larger movie topics. Uh, Some of them can get very academic. Some of them can get kind of fanboyish. But yeah, we've been doing it uh, every week since March 2007. Uh, And then in... July, I believe, of 2009, I started More Than One Lesson, which was my own podcast, uh, and it's film discussion from a Christian point of view. And that's something that uh, is very important to me because in my experience, uh, a lot of Christians, certainly not all of them, but uh, a lot of Christians are suspicious of Hollywood uh, both because of the the content of their films, but also uh, maybe the viewpoint, which is uh, even I will admit not super sympathetic <laughs> to uh, to Christians. Um, and so, but I was thankfully raised in a very pro movie household, and uh, my parents and my brother uh, and myself we just loved watching movies, and so. I started More Than One Lesson as a way of maybe getting Christians more comfortable with the idea of film as an art form and that it's not something that or it's rarely something that is being made actively against (laughs) Christians and that and that mindset. uh, And that perhaps if we view it more as just seeing another person's point of view and, and helping to under helping us to understand how that person might view the world. Um, I think it would be very helpful and you'd get Christians maybe more interested in films and filmmaking. And, uh, and that has actually started to happen. I don't think necessarily as a function of my show, but, uh, certainly, uh, in the last 10 years or so, there's been a real explosion of, uh, you know, in the Christian film industry, uh, for good or bad, usually bad, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's definitely been interesting to see that part of my uh, film criticism career uh, develop uh, and the relationships that have come out of that and that kind of thing. So those are the two. I don't do more than one lesson as often as I used to uh, just because I've been so busy lately, but Battleship Pretension has been going strong. Yeah. Um, So did you, were you raised in the church or did you come to church later in life after a life of debauchery and Uh, I was raised in the church, still a life of debauchery, but I was raised in the church. I'm joking, of course. I I lived a very clean-cut, upright life. Um, And and like I said, I I am so fortunate because I know plenty of people that that are still Christian. They're raised in the church. They're still Christian. But they were their parents, like said, you know, nothing rated R, maybe even nothing PG-13 movies. Sure. Are they're just, you know, they're just entertainment. And so you can't really get anything out of them. So based on that, why would I let you watch such a thing as, you know, a rated R movie or whatever? Um, And so I'm very I'm very thankful that my parents did not have that attitude. They still cared about what I watched, of course. And and it's not as though at age eight they're saying, okay, it's time to watch Goodfellas or something like that. Right. But as I got older, um, uh, I'm trying to think what the what the example was. Oh, that's what that's right. So as I got older and like into high school and I'm like 15 years old, uh, my parents very quickly realized that the movies, the, the R rated movies that I'm interested in is stuff like reversal of fortune from 1990, which is about (laughs) like the Klaus von Bülow case. I'm interested in that and not showgirls, you know? And 
you know, and hats off to my parents for rather than just coming up with a, a hard and fast rule that does not change, they instead looked at the specifics of my interest in film and adapted the rules accordingly. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, I was, I'm very, I'm still very grateful to them for that. Yeah. Um, I wanted to mention that, um, I wanted to interview, uh, Kirby Dick who did the movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, this film is not yet rated, but he is an Oscar winning, uh, documentary filmmaker. So, uh, I don't think I'll be able to get him, but you know, I I could, I'd still try, but uh, yeah, that, that uh, Christians put a lot of, uh, weight on the rating system R and PG thirteen. Yeah. Uh, since you're in, you know, since you studied film and you're a film critic, how do you see that actually applying? Like, how do you do? You think that it's a, a good system of measurement, or it should be? I taken... think it's. I think it's fine. I think it serves its purpose. It's meant to be a shorthand, sure, um, so that people can just like look at a movie, they see that little rating on there, and they at least have an idea that okay. I at least know who this is for. Like an R-rated movie is not for a six-year-old kid, regardless of why it's rated R. So, you know, it could just be that. Right. Uh, I think the problem is when you take the rating system as gospel. Mm. Um, and and I'm not trying to make a, you know, use that term in a Christian sense. I just right. mean for some people, like, you know, Schindler's List is is rated R, as it should be. It's incredibly violent, and you're seeing some really horrendous imagery, but does that mean it's inappropriate? Yeah. Does that mean that a 15-year-old shouldn't be seeing it? You know, and so that's what I mean when I talk about, like, these hard and fast rules or these blanket ideas, which is R equals bad regardless of the story being told, regardless of how it's being told. R equals bad. PG-13, okay, maybe we're a little bit suspicious. but And I think one of the problems with that is that there are plenty of G and PG-rated movies that might actually be uh, putting bad messages out there. Yeah. Uh, uh, but because you know, it's, from a Christian standpoint, there was that movie, The Golden Compass, which the author of the book specifically was writing it with uh, atheistic goals in mind. He wanted to make like the Atheist Chronicles of Narnia, but it was rated PG, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so, hey, what reason do we have to be suspicious of it? It's like, so this movie that is seemingly safe uh, could actually be more thematically harmful, according to these parents, uh, than than an R-rated film that actually is really engaging uh, in a sincere way with religious beliefs. So I think it's it makes for a shorthand. It, it, it's a good shorthand, but that's not. People use it as more than just that. They use it as the end-all, be-all of should I see this movie or not? And I, I think that is the problem. Yeah, yeah, I totally. I, I always get that because uh, you know I think they even instituted the PG thirteen because uh, Gremlins was given a PG rating, and uh, you know, yeah, it's a little, uh, yeah. Uh, so when did you know you wanted to, or what did you want to do when you grew up? Like, wh- you had this interest in film and you studied film. You went to. Did you go to school for film? I did. Yeah. Um... I, I mean, I knew in, in high school that I wanted to do something related to movies. I just didn't really know what, um, I had done some acting and really enjoyed that, but I also liked writing. And then in college, I went to film school in Chicago and focused on writing and directing and critical studies. And then I moved out, my wife and I moved out to Los Angeles so that I could pursue writing, um, and then while I was here, just kind of for fun, uh, that's when David and I started Battleship Pretension. And very quickly, I discovered that it was way more fulfilling than anything that I might be writing. Um, and I still enjoyed writing, and I still would have liked to see some of the scripts that I wrote you know, come to fruition. But at the same time, I really enjoyed doing the podcast, and I enjoyed doing film criticism. Uh, and so I pivoted probably in about about 10 years ago, 2008, I pivoted more towards criticism and stopped writing screenplays um, and that sort of thing. So 
I think, I think honestly, and this is the case for a lot of people is it was very, I think what I wanted to do is a very vague idea, which was, uh, right and direct, I guess. Sure. Why not? Um, and then you come out here and you realize how many different aspects of film there are mm -hmm. and you find one that is more personally satisfying. And that's definitely the case with me. And so, yeah, so I, I moved away from film production a, uh, a while ago. Hmm. And uh, you have these two websites, Battleship Retention and More Than One Lesson, More Than One Lesson being the right. Christian uh, website, and you write film criticism for both. Uh, yeah. Your opinion doesn't change about film because you're a Christian versus when you're writing for a, you know, the Battleship Retention site. Um, so uh, no, it doesn't. It doesn't change. But I mean, I do think I do take the websites that I'm writing for. I do take that into account sure. and recognize that everything about More Than One Lesson is branded as Christian. And that provides me with a little bit of freedom to talk more about theme Oh, yes. But it's not. But it's not as though uh, <laughs> uh, when I'm watching a movie that it's like, well, I'm watching this for more than one lesson, or I'm watching this for battleship pretension. So I need to see it through a specific lens. Like that, the lens doesn't change, but right. how I talk about it might change a little bit depending on who I'm writing for. Sure, and who you are as a Christian, uh, that's a part of who you are when you're right when you're viewing it like if you're if you're writing it for battleship retention which is you know that lens doesn't go away you're still who yeah. you are either way and so i think that, that that's kind of an interesting thing because on your battleship retention uh the podcast you often bring up your faith you're not afraid to talk about that because it's a part of who you are and i think that that's a really great thing to have in the you know on a secular uh, podcast that you know, you're, it's just a different perspective that maybe a lot of people well, don't get. Well, a, a big part of Battleship Retention is that it's very much me and David and our personal lives mm -hmm. and our relationships and our beliefs. And, you know, we believe that all of that will play into how somebody watches a movie, whether it be us or anybody else. You know, you can't – we can try to go in objectively. I think we should. But at the same – and try to see – what the director is is trying to do and try to meet them where they are i think that's all uh, a noble goal but it's also an impossible one you cannot you cannot leave all of your baggage at the door you can't leave your beliefs you can't leave your experiences um nor should and i don't think you should try again yeah of course not objectivity is fine uh insofar as it allows you to give the director the benefit of the doubt and try to hear them out but at the same time if film and art is communication, then, you know, if you and I are talking about just something in life and you tr and you decide, oh, I don't want to bias myself in this conversation. So I'm going to not talk about any of the things that might actually pertain to this conversation. It'll be a very boring discussion. Yeah. And so, you know, it's uh, if you are watching a movie about grief and you have actually lost somebody, then you can't help but compare what is being presented to you with their own experiences. And so neither David nor I try to hide who we are and the, the place that we're coming from when we, when we watch a movie. And so, yeah, I, it has bothered some people that I bring up my faith um, as often as I do. And I try not to bring it up that much um, mostly because I just don't want to repeat myself. Sure. Uh, but uh but I do think that it's it's important that people know where I'm coming from when I uh, talk about a movie. Yeah, that's really I think that's really important. And I think that when a if a reader goes to a specific film critic, they go to that person for a reason, whether it's because yeah. they're a Christian or because they have a certain perspective, they whether they agree with them or not, it's because they have that perspective that they're reading them. Yeah, I think that's pretty important. And it certainly happens a lot politically, um, especially these days. But honestly, it's not even now. It's not a new thing that a, that a film critic will incorporate their politics into the way they approach a movie, whether it be something like JFK or American Sniper or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And some people might be bothered by that. They're like, oh, just review the movie. And it's like, yeah, but this is what I thought of while I was watching the movie. Right. 
Um, I remember, I, th- I think it was, um, it was either Gene Siskel or Roger Ebert, or maybe both, that said that they approach writing a review as, as though they were writing a standard news story. You know, that they're just reporting on a news story, but the story isn't even the movie. The story is their reaction to the movie. So they're reporting objectively on their subjective reaction to the film, which means, you know, if if, the, if it made you think about something, then by all means, uh, incorporate it. Because you never quite know if that's the thing that's going to put a, a read over and either convince them to see or not see this movie, which is, you know, what it's all about. Yeah, um, so... I wanted to talk to you about uh, a, a talk that you gave at the International Christian Film Festival. Uh, but first, let me ask you, what, what is that like? What is uh, the International Christian Film Festival like? Like, does David A.R. White walk around like a like a king and everybody like a big him? like a like a big shot? <laughs> yeah, uh, he does. Yes. Um, and, you know, and that's that's he walks around like a regular person, sure. but everybody knows who he is and he is treated like a big shot because in that world uh, he is. Um yeah, so the International Christian Film Festival, I first went, it, it happens every year in Orlando, and I went. I first went a few years ago, and I just had a table, that was it, for more than one lesson, um, and just so that I could get the word out about the podcast to an audience that I'm not usually talking to, which is uh, an audience of not just Christian film fans, but fans of Christian film, mm. uh, and I've taken more than my fair share of swings at Christian film on my podcast, but I thought this could be an interesting opportunity. So I went and one thing that had happened, cause I had to pay for my, my vendor table. Um, and so <laughs> they have an award ceremony, uh, at the end of the festival. And they asked if I wanted to present one of the awards. And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? And the award I was presenting was for screenplay and something that I have said for a long time is that where Christian films start to go wrong, it certainly is not the only place they go wrong, but where they start to go wrong is in the writing. And so I thought it was amusing that, uh, that's the award I was going to be presenting. And I, I was in the, I wasn't going to be presenting for like 45 minutes. So I was sitting in the award ceremony and everything, I realize it's awards, so it makes sense, but everything was so positive and everybody was talking about like how great Christian film was getting and all that. And this was the year of God's not dead. Hmm. And hang on. Sorry, it was the year after God's not dead, oh, okay. um, which made a ton of money. And a lot of people had talked about how much they liked it. And I think it's an atrocious film. Hmm. And I realized that the nature of awards is to celebrate. And I know that the point of awards is also to be self-congratulatory, but it just really got to me. And I thought, I am in a position of actually talking to this whole room of people. And so I, I ducked outside and I prayed a lot and I called my wife who wasn't available at the time. So then I called my friend Jason. I said, hey, I, I'm thinking of saying something when I go up to present. And so he and I kind of worked out what I was gonna say. Um, and so sure enough, I went up there and said what I thought uh, about Christian film and how it could be better and the way that we tend to make excuses for Christian film rather than just try to make better movies. Um, and the audience uh, was very into what I was saying, which was very nice. Uh, I liked that. Um, and then the next year, uh, they gave they let me do uh, a lecture uh, or a seminar, whatever you want to call it which I called uh, Speaking the Language of Film, which is a very basic aesthetics talk with clips and that sort of thing. Hmm. Uh, and then the year after that, they asked me back again, and I could talk about whatever I wanted. And something that has been said, not just in Christian circles, but in general, but certainly it's something that you hear a lot with Christians and political conservatives, uh, of which I am one, by the way. Sure. Uh, but the attitude of whatever a critic says, oh, I just do the opposite. And I hate that. Not just because I am a critic, but I hated that before I was one. Because, like, really? Do you know who loves that attitude? Studios. 
Critics are not trying to get your money. Studios are. And if they can get you turning against critics who are trying to help you save your time and money, uh, you know, and if if studios are successful in like this campaign against critics, uh, then congratulations. You've just completely you're just willing to eat up whatever studios uh, are serving out, whether they be Christian or otherwise. Uh, and so. So, yeah, for my second talk, it was called Everybody Hates Critics. And essentially, I wanted to talk about the the value of film criticism uh, in the world of movies. And they're not as important as movies themselves. Like, it's a thing that I try to come back to over and over is that there are a lot of critics who make it about them. And not in the way that I was talking about before, where... Uh, we talk about our own perspectives, but it's more like, hey, aren't I great? Look at look at how I put these words together. Look how clever I am as I tear down this movie or whatever it is like they're trying to sell themselves. And it's no, you shouldn't be doing that. We should be signposts. We could be very eloquent signposts, but we are in the in the end, we're we're supposed to be signposts pointing towards movies. That's what we're supposed to be. And, you know, anytime you Anytime a critic like mistakes the real draw, uh, you know, mistakes themselves for the actual draw, I think that's a problem. But that doesn't mean that film criticism in general is something that should be viewed with suspicion um, or dismissed uh, in general. And so uh, I was very I I liked that talk. I think the the audiences uh, I think the audience responded to it. Um, It was probably one of my more abstract talks, but they seemed to like it. Yeah, and I, I kind of really appreciate uh, you, what you have, what you've said about film critics because a lot of people, and not just in the Christian community, but just in, in general, when they talk about film critics, they say, "Oh, they don't like anything." And I think you've said yeah. before that actually film critics love movies. They they, yeah. they love movies most. That's why they decided to go into that that business and or you know that that profession. And I really appreciate that you mentioned that that these these guys they know what they're talking about and that's why they say the things that they do and they you know like what they like and don't like and what most people mean when they say that critics don't like anything what they mean is critics don't like what i like like everybody i mean everybody has seen a movie that they don't like yeah. some people see a lot of movies that they don't like whether they're critics or critic or or trained or anything like that it's whether they be books or TV shows or, or music or whatever it is, everybody hears or sees stuff that they don't like all the time. Yeah. The problem is that uh, studios tend to serve up franchises and stuff like that, and that's not a crime, but studios will do what they can. And I, I don't mean to – I don't like to demonize studios, but they're just so easy to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the They'll serve up – more of the same, you know, whatever's popular. It's like, can we replicate this? And in doing so kind of remove all originality from it. And so critics see a lot of that. And when a movie just gives you exactly what you expect, um, it can be tiresome because critics also see more movies than most people. So they see this more often. And so they have less patience for what, studios are doing and what and that hap- that is usually what the average film goer goes to see and so when people say oh studio you know uh, sorry when when people say critics don't like anything it's usually you know people don't actually see that many movies in the theater they will go see big event movies and big event movies are just that because studios have pumped a lot of money into them and if they put a lot of money into them that means that they want it to reach as wide an audience as possible which means it's not going to be that specific it's not going to be that unique and it's not going to be challenging and so yeah those and those tend to be the things that critics look for in movies so yeah it's it has always bothered me when people say critics don't like anything it's like no they just don't like what you like and incidentally you probably don't like what they like so you know maybe let's not bash them for being negative when it's not about negativity it's just about the specific thing that they're negative about right uh did you want to go uh more into that talk specifically maybe you already mentioned what it was about but i really like that idea that everyone hates a critic which is Mm -hmm. what you called that 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 lecture uh, what, yeah. what specifically were you talking about 
uh, in the, in it if you didn't already well one it. one thing is uh, so I show at the beginning of the talk I put together a montage of critics being depicted in film right and one thing that I've seen over and over and over again is when Ratatouille came out, the character of Anton Ego, play uh, voiced by Peter O'Toole, he's a food critic. And at the end of the film, he has this long monologue where he talks about, you know, we critics, we need to face the fact that, you know, the the an average piece of artistic junk is more important than our criticism designating it a piece of junk. And so I've seen people post that monologue on Facebook and on Twitter um, as a way of saying like, yeah, that's right. You critics, you don't get it. And one of the reasons that I love that I love the character of Anton Ego in Ratatouille is because that's not where the monologue ends, regardless of whether people want it to end there or not. (laughs) Um, It's, it goes with where we critics, you know, where we do risk something is when we champion something new. Mm. When we take something, it could be an independent film, it could be a lesser known musical artist, whatever it is, and they're doing something that's different, something that people, that the average person might not like. And the critic's job is to do everything they can to provide this artist with an ally, somebody who who understands what they're trying to do and is going to give them the benefit of the doubt, which a studio and the average average audience member will not do. And so that's one of the things that I love about Ratatouille is that, you know, you look at, you look at a movie like lady in the water, which all it has is condemnation. Whereas Ratatouille, uh, Ratatouille, it absolutely um, understands that. Yeah. Sometimes critics do make it about themselves more than they should, but they still do risk something. Um, If they, because that's the thing. I've had people. Uh, sorry, they haven't said it to me. But when I've 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 heard critics say that someone will come and be like, "Oh, you liked this movie? I want my money back." You know, <laughs> there's something to be said. You know, a, a critic has to. They're putting their opinion out there, and someone feels like if your opinion is wrong, then they will take it somehow personally, and they'll take it out on you personally <laughs> as well. Um, something that has happened sort of since that talk that I gave is the uh, the new uh, Disney Star Wars movies. Mm. And the movies do have, I'd say, a left-leaning political quality to them. Um, it hasn't put me off of them. I love Last Jedi myself. Uh, but there are a lot of people who didn't like all the, as they say, the SJW crap. Um, and then... But then they look at the positive reviews and like, oh, these critics are just shills. Either they're shills like they just do – they just will say good things about Disney no matter what or they like the politics of the movie. Like because the movies have taken on this more personal and political qualities uh, and if the person – and if the viewer doesn't agree with it, then anybody that could possibly be arguing in favor of it um, is a shill of some kind. And so it takes – so suddenly the critic is wor- is is risks being accused of like selling out their opinion because the movie is doing something they like or maybe they're just getting paid by Disney. It's a stupid <laughs> argument, but it's it happens a lot more now. Yeah, I, I remember in the movie A Chef uh, with John Favreau. Yeah, yeah, he like John Favreau goes off on a film critic. I, I'm sorry, on a food yeah. critic, and he like because of what he said about a dessert, and he grabs yeah. a dessert and he's shaking it in his face, and he's yeah. like, "Do you know how hard we worked on this?" And blah blah right. blah. But at the end, even and, even in that movie, at the end, the critic says, "You used to be better than this. I'm not crapping yeah. on you for nothing. That you have something in you that you're that you're not letting out and." Yeah. And, and even, and John Favreau knew that, like his character knew that, like he was arguing with the owner of the restaurant played by Dustin Hoffman. He's like, I want to try new things. And the owner says, no, you're not trying new things. You're going to stick with what's, with what's popular. Right. And the critic, like the critic absolutely picked up on it and mentioned it. And so, and that's probably something that the John Favreau character, um, something that like really hurt him is that, the critic was saying something that he himself knew was probably true, you know, but at the, but yeah, that's what I like. I like when, 
I think it's just dumb to say, oh, they don't know what it, how hard it is to do this. Like, no, they don't know. But neither does the average audience member either, mm-hmm. by the way, you know, and you're probably going to get a lot more grace from a critic than you will an audience member um, because they at least have a deeper understanding of how difficult it can be, even if they've never experienced it. And so I feel like the, the good movies that deal with critics are the ones that understand the role of the critic um, as somebody that can be an advocate for a film, yeah. um, but also an advocate for the audience hmm. and say, hey, you you've done this before. In fact, this is kind of all you do. We're getting tired of it and you're asking people to spend their money and time on it, you know? And so, so yeah, I, I kind of view them as I, I, yeah, I think I just use the word advocate and I think that's, that is how I think a critic should be viewed. Mm. Um, as somebody who is not, is by no means a gatekeeper, um, of quality art, but somebody that maybe can, challenge the audience or the artist to like ask certain questions so that they can demand more of themselves and their art. Yeah. Um, a movie that I bring up a lot on this podcast is, uh, you know, uh, life itself with a, mm-hmm. uh, the Roger Ebert movie where, yeah. uh, yeah. And like you're saying, they're an advocate for filmmakers in that movie. They like uh, several filmmakers like are, glad that Roger Ebert talked about their movie that yeah. nobody would have seen if not for them talking about it. And so yeah. I think that that's something really great that film critics actually do is that they do champion these up and coming film critics like in the 60s I think. Uh yeah. Roger Ebert was, you know, really a, a a seminal voice for films that a lot of film critics didn't like at the time. And he championed the, uh, there was this group of film critics that actually loved these newer films that a lot of people weren't yeah. liking. And I thought that that was great. But, uh, and what's, and something that's interesting is that Siskel and Ebert, when the first Halloween came out, they loved it. Hmm. They just really loved the style. They loved the suspense. They loved the music and it, they just really responded to it. But then in the eighties, when the masked killer genre, whether it be Friday the 13th or more Halloween movies, honestly, yeah. um, it became incredibly popular and they hated these movies. Right. And it's probably because they were so inherently derivative. Like what was once original is now boring and nothing new is being brought to it. And so, so yeah, I do think, and I don't think that's an instance of hypocrisy. It's an instance of the film critic really trying to encourage people, let's put it that way, encourage sure. people to, to, look at something different instead of just go to the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and you know, anytime somebody challenges you to do something different, it's always very easy to say that they're being egotistical or they're being judgmental or whatever. Um, and maybe some of them are, in fact, I know some of them are, but at the same time, uh, there's nothing inherently, uh, judgmental or egotistical about doing that. Yeah, and the, well, there's a reason why Halloween, we're still talking about that movie today, and there's yeah. countless of mass killer movies in the 80s that we don't even remember. There's just, oh, there yeah. were so many of them in the 80s, it was like yeah. almost defined by that, you know. But uh, I wanted to talk about like uh, that, what you just mentioned about how some critics are kind of make criticism about themselves. Uh, Jamie Kennedy made a movie called Heckler where he talked about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, hecklers in an audience that heckle comedians, but he goes even further to talk about film critics and he kind of bunches them all together. But he was right in some sense that some film critics get really personal and really attack, like they get really vicious. And I think yeah. that has to do with internet uh, criticism now. Yes. Yeah. Find that that's something that's happening more. Well, first, I want to say that I think the comparison of the critic, even an Internet critic to a heckler is dumb. Right. It, because when it comes right down to it, a heckler stops the art from happening. Yeah. And I do think that stand up comedy is an art. Mm-hmm. And so somebody is up there and they're doing this. And if the heckler is they're interrupting what has already been prepared, what's already been proven, because it's not working for them. 
there aren't many critics that burst onto a studio set and say, stop everything. Okay, that doesn't happen. They they wait because they have to. They wait for the art to be finished and then they comment on it. All right. And so I do think that it's very different. Now, the way they comment might be awful and it might take on the tone of a heckler. But the one of the worst things about hecklers is that they put their their opinion and their experience over ever, everybody else's to such an extent that they're actually going to stop everybody else from having that experience. Um, and so and critics don't do that. Hmm. So uh but I do think that there is definitely a strain of uh, online critic who they make things personal. Um, and it could be because that's just who they are, or it could be this idea of there are so many critics online that how am I going to distinguish myself? Oh, I know I'll be really catty mm. uh, and I'll really, you know, stick it to these people. And there are critics that I, that I know of, I thankfully have not met. But I know of them, and they they represent a type of critic that I don't like. Uh, there was a movie that I really loved many years ago called Entrance. Um, oh, yeah, it's... and it's a it's a slow burn horror movie that takes place in Silver Lake, which is a, a kind of a hipster community in Los Angeles. Uh, but I think the movie is absolutely marvelous, uh, and it centers around, like so many other horror movies do, it centers around a young woman, and she's played by an actress named Susie Block, and she spells her name S-U-Z-I-E-Y. And, you know, an unusual spelling, but whatever. Uh, but this one critic, like, just really hated the movie, but even went out of his way to comment on, like, the hipstery self-indulgent spelling of her name it's like who cares how she spells her name the problem is it's like you didn't like the movie so now anything even remotely associated with the movie uh is fair game for you and including the actress who just who i think does a great job but also is just trying to get a role you know and got a lead role in a in a low budget horror movie why would you turn that down and that's something that just really bothered me um but that's not that still is not is not unique to to internet criticism. I mean, there were there were critics uh, in the '60s. There was a guy whose name immediately escapes me. That bothers me. But there was a guy who regularly we comment on the physical attractiveness of the actors on screen, uh, or their la- or the lack thereof. You know, uh, this guy wrote very scathing things about Barbara Streisand and the size of her nose, which is like, well, that's almost that's borderline anti-Semitic. But yeah. Um, but yeah. And so it's there. There has always been this like it is a way to distinguish yourself, not to imply that you are distinguished for doing it. But it's a way to, you know, set yourself apart from the pack because, oh, this person, man, they don't pull any punches and. And that's the big thing is, uh, you know, you got to get them clicks and whatever is most extreme tends to get more clicks. Yeah. Uh, in, in the food, food, uh, in the food critic realm, there was that, uh, criticism, the New York times ran a criticism of, uh, or an article on Guy Fieri's restaurant in New York. Sure. And it was vicious and yeah. horrible. And, you know, most people that, people that I know that have been there, they're like, it's fine. It's like a TGI Fridays, yeah. and it what didn't it it didn't need to be that that horrible. Uh, it was it was pretty bad. And, and I've written reviews, uh, uh, you know, I've written scathing reviews of movies before. I try not to, and I try not to be overly clever about it. I try to be sincere and earnest about what bothers me. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually, the the movies that I save the most, like the the real ire for are the ones that I think are very cynical. So either they're a studio calculation where they just know that the audience is going to see it so they don't have to put any effort in, or a film that I think uh, actually is um, adopting a philosophy that is genuinely damaging to society, but the the film thinks it's great, Mm. you know? Um, There is a movie that nobody saw, nor should they have, called Struck by Lightning in 2012, that is just awful. Yeah, I remember um, you talking about that. 
and it's it was it was written and stars Chris Colfer of Glee, and it's he plays this guy who is kind of a unique thinker in high school and and kind of runs up against some of the more standard high school thinking, both amongst the students and the administrators. And so it's like, okay, yeah, that's we've seen that before, and that's fine. But what has become very clear is that you would think this is a movie that's like anti-bullying because people have sort of treated this kid poorly, but then he gets some power and then he just goes after the cheerleaders and like dresses them down. Like, and it, it got me thinking like, Oh no, this isn't anti-bullying. It's just about reverse bullying. It's about, uh, making people feel bad who happen to fall into certain cliques, which by the way, in high school, can anybody really be blamed for doing whatever it is they feel like is the right thing to do? I guarantee you they're going to regret it in a few years anyway. Um, they're not they're not fully formed. Uh, and it just and it read like like a bitter 16 year old wrote it. And lo and behold, uh, it, it, it was written by a bitter 16 year old um, and it just shouldn't have been made. And it's one of those things that it makes this argument that. It's not it's not against it's not against bullying. It's about bullying the right people. And I think that is genuinely a destructive attitude. Yeah, I think uh, God Bless America was another one. I love Bobcat Goldthwaite, but, uh, you know, two people going across country murdering people that they don't like as if we're going to cheer them for it. Like it's it's a pretty gross movie. And many of the people that they don't like, by wacky coincidence, happen to be uh, right, uh, right-leaning. Yeah, it's... huh? <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, real cutting edge for uh, re- real balls out there for. <laughs> yeah, and uh, while of course you know, and uh, there's a scene where they kill people that talk during movies, and sure, that was satisfying for me to see. But <laughs> you know, I feel like anytime a viewer feels like a movie is is speaking to them but in a way that makes them feel very, very self-righteous. It's like, okay, it's not speaking to you, it's pandering to you, and you need to be very suspicious of it. Yeah. Yeah, um, on my other podcast, uh, I actually got contacted by a filmmaker who wanted me to, who wanted to be on the podcast, and he let us watch the movie, and I really didn't like it. Yeah. And so I had to write a film critic friend of mine to say, what do I do in this situation? And yeah, we ended up reviewing it behind a paywall so that not that many people would hear it. But we let him talk on the podcast and talk about his movie. And I gave him his his time. Yeah. How do you deal with that when you meet somebody and who made a film maybe that you didn't like or that you had criticisms of that even though you might have liked the movie? I think. Well, so, OK, this this has happened a few times in a couple different ways. Um, it's not at all uncommon for people who've made smaller movies and sometimes not actually, um, I won't say any names, but a director actually just contacted me like three weeks ago who'd put out a, not high profile, but not low profile either, like a mid profile movie that just didn't do a lot of business. And he reached out to me on Facebook and said, Hey, do you think you could write a review for it? Because I'm trying to get, it just came out on Blu-ray and I'm trying to get, you know, get some publicity. And I responded with, uh, here's the problem with that. I can't guarantee my review will be positive. So if you're looking to get the word out and my word is negative, that's not going to help you. Mm. Now, if you wanted to come on the podcast and be interviewed about it, uh, that's, that's actually okay because chances are, even if they make a movie I don't like, uh, they probably still have strong opinions on film and they can probably still carry on a conversation and it could still be very productive even if I don't like what they've put out. Um, but then the flip side of that is, uh, at the international Christian film festival, one of the keynote speakers was Alex Kendrick who made fireproof and courageous and war room. Uh, none of which I liked, Mm. but, but compared to something like God's not dead, which feels like a political calculation, uh, and just an exercise in pandering, um, Fireproof and War Room feel much more personal. I don't think they actually work very well, but it's clearly a director making movies about stuff that is important to him. You know, it's about husbands and fathers. He is clearly a husband and father trying to figure out how can I how can I do this best? And so so I respect that infinitely more 
than the God's Not Dead films, which are just trying to rile up the audience and convince them that the world is against them, even if they are the uh, even if they are the majority uh, in this country, certainly. Um, and just I don't like any movie that says, yeah, you guys are right. You're so right. You have no idea how right you are. Um, and War Room and Fireproof are not that. And so uh, so I saw Alex Kendrick. It was it was a few years ago. It was I was sitting at my table. Um, it was outside the awards ceremony. And so nobody was around in the hallway. Uh, and I saw him walk up and I said, like, all right, here we go. So I went up and I said, Mr. Kendrick, uh, my name is Tyler Smith. I'm a film critic. Uh, and I did want to just say, I'm not always a huge fan of your movies. <laughs> and he responded with, and he responded with, that's all right. Neither am I. And I was like, hey, all right. I like that. Um, and, uh, and I said, but I do really appreciate the spirit in which you make them. Uh, because, you know, for the reasons that I said just then. And so I gave him a card and said, if he's ever in Los Angeles, I'd love to interview him. Um, I don't know how I don't know how often he's in Los Angeles now that I think about it, because I think he's based in uh, Georgia. But um, but yeah, and I would love to interview him. Yeah, um, because I think like, even even if he's put out movies that I don't like, there's always something you can talk about as far as their inspiration, the impetus to make these movies. You can always find something to talk about. And you can always find some kind of common ground. You know, it really is just, you know, if I were to talk to Chris Colfer about Struck by Lightning, that might be where it becomes a problem because it's a movie that thinks it's so much better than you. Mm, um, yeah. And that it's it's too pure for this world and it's enlightened and it's all of this stuff while also espousing a particularly destructive philosophy. And... I feel like that might be a situation where, like, if I were interviewing Chris Colfer, I'd probably just have to avoid <laughs> talking about the movie. Right. So, but yeah, I try to tell people, like, right off the bat, like, if you are approaching, it happens with BP a lot. Um, like, if you're approaching us to try to, like, to review your movie so that you can publicize it, that's not a good call because I can't guarantee the, the review will be positive. Yeah, and something that I was told was uh, when they when he reached out and I asked, uh, they said that if he's letting you watch the movie, he has well, if he's releasing anything publicly, he has to understand that some people might not like it, and that's yeah. something every artist needs to kind of understand. And so yeah. that was a little bit relieving, but uh, you know, <laughs> it was a little yeah. I I was nervous that he might find out, and he, I think he did find out that I didn't like it, but my co-host did so liked it so and yeah and that's and that's okay and and it's it's why and i don't think there's any shame in not liking something and i don't think it's necessarily reflect and i understand they put a lot of work into it sometimes they put their own money into it mm -hmm. they want it to be good i want it to be good and if it didn't work for me so be it you know um and so, so if i were you in that situation um I would have still written the review. It would have been a negative review. Putting it behind a paywall, I think, is very considerate. Yeah. Um, and I would have said, hey, just a heads up. Uh, my review was not positive. My co-host liked it. Uh, it wasn't my cup of tea. But I also am not looking to hurt your movie either. So I did write a review. It's behind a paywall, so it's not just out there. Um, you know. But I thought I would extend the courtesy of letting you know that – it is not a positive review, you know? Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, so I'm saying you did the wrong thing. Yeah. You should have done the right <laughs> thing like me. See, isn't that a terrible attitude? Now imagine a two hour movie with that attitude. Right. Uh, okay. Well, we should start winding things down, but I, I wanted to okay. bring something up here. Um, so what we do on the podcast is in the uh, we release two episodes. The first one we talk about what movie we're going to be talking about, and we talk about the movie. Okay. And one thing that some of the information we give is the Rotten Tomato score. And sure. I hear because I think that it's a good you know way to you know more information for the audience to have. But a lot sure. of film critics don't like the idea or the how Rotten Tomatoes decides whether a movie is good or bad because it's an aggregate of whether movies are good, you know, or filmmakers. Yeah. Like how, how do you feel about Rotten Tomatoes and what, how should we view something like that? Um, 
so I actually wrote a, uh, I, I think it was, was the last paper? No, it was one of the last papers that I wrote uh, in grad school at UCLA. I wrote it about a year and a half ago. And it's called uh, The Vulgarization of Film Criticism. And vulgarization in this case meaning the almost the commonization like there's just so many people out there practicing it uh but uh and that in doing so it kind of lessens the the nuance and subtlety of film criticism and i do think that rotten tomatoes uh it serves its purpose and it does have a purpose and i think it's fine uh, you know, I was talking before about the rating system being a kind of shorthand. The Rotten Tomato score is also that. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the crit, you know, because Battleship Retention is on Rotten Tomatoes now. And so I've had a couple, I have a couple reviews there. Um, and so, you know, you sent, when you submit a review, you submit like a little, snippet of your review and then whether you consider the movie to be rotten or fresh it sucks that you only that it's a it's a complete pass <laughs> fail and so if a movie is even kind of good it's like well i guess it i guess it's fresh but it's hardly a 100% you know um and then there have been movies that i that i feel positively towards but i feel but i still feel like they could do a lot more and thus it's not something that i could really recommend and so well that just means it's rotten and so it's unfortunate that that's kind of how it goes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I don't begrudge the existence of Rotten Tomatoes any more than I begrudge the existence of the MPAA. It's really just the idea of people glancing at the one score without looking at any of the review snippets mm. or anything like that. They literally just look at a number and it's like, oh, 85%. All right, must be good. Or, oh. Uh, 58% must not be good. Okay, well, that's it. Meanwhile, if you actually read the reviews, you'd see that it's much more complicated than that 90% of the time. Um, you know, and I know that Siskel and Ebert did not like the thumbs up, thumbs down system. Mm. You know, a lot of critics don't even like the four star system, which at least gives you, you know, with half stars and stuff, you at least have a lot of options there. Um, but they didn't like thumbs up, thumbs down. But the one consolation they had was they would give a movie thumbs up on their show only after talking about it. Yeah. So that at the very least, uh, the viewer could hear what, what these two critics were saying and at least have a better idea for why there's the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And so, yeah, I don't think it's an inherent evil, but I do think that it's, uh, you know, it can be used for, well, not evil, but it can be used <laughs> to to allow someone to uh, not really do the the research into into a movie, and maybe they wind up not seeing a movie that they actually would like. Hmm. Yeah, because I think that there there are plenty of movies that got like really bad reviews that I think everybody could you know pick and choose or have movies yeah. that Rotten Tomatoes hated or you know as a whole, but they loved. So, um, okay, so. Uh, one last question here, and maybe it's hard for you to answer this one, but if a if if somebody is going to find a film critic, because I think that it's a okay. good idea. If you like movies, what should they look for? How should they go about doing it? Because there are certain people that I go to that I yeah. think I, I totally love their – and you being one of them. You're one of my favorite critics, though. So oh, thank you. That. But um, – yeah, because even when I disagree with you, I appreciate why you know why you didn't like something. I respect your opinion a lot, and you bring up stuff yeah. that other people don't. And so, how should a, a Christian, let's say, because this is a Christian uh, podcast, go about finding mm -hmm. a good film critic? Would you say? Well, I would say. In a situation like this where it's Christians who are clearly looking to engage with movies, but maybe they don't know how yet, um, I think starting off safe is perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. By which I mean there are uh, Christian movie podcasts out there. There are uh, 
websites that are devoted to discussing film from a Christian point of view, like find those first, first find the commonality, like uh, uh, the most basic commonality you might have with these critics. But, and that's the thing is there are, there are websites out there that judge movies based purely on, uh, whether their philosophy matches the Christian mindset and it's like, well, I don't think that's a good way. I don't think that's actually a good barometer. Um, so, you know, first you look for people that have this very important thing in common with you. But then once you find that, if you start reading them, you'll start weeding them out really quick mm. and you'll realize like, OK, this uh, this focus on the family thing is not they're not interested in theme. They're not interested in uh, story there or artistic quality. They're just interested in how many swear words are there. You know, and then this one over here seems to have a political agenda that even if I agree with it, that is not why I want to see this movie. And so so th that will quickly fall away. And then you'll come away probably with two or three critics or websites or podcasts or YouTubers, whatever um, that you that you like. And then they will often then reference critics that they that have influenced them. Uh, and then you can go from there, you know, so in a way you find people that you agree with and who you relate to, and then just almost treat it as a referral process. Like who do they refer? And it's still not a guarantee that you'll like those other critics like those, you know, I, I don't like to use the term, but like the, the non-Christian, the secular critics. Um, and, and honestly, I, I do think that there's nothing wrong with going with going mainstream, you know, uh, Roger Ebert may be gone, you know, he's been gone for five years, but he was like the definitive film critic for the, uh, of the modern age. And so just, go, and a lot of his reviews are online. So go and find his reviews of things. Um, and then there's also, you know, think of the movies that you absolutely love. And then go to IMDb, click on external reviews and just start reading those reviews and see what these people think. And you may find that there are certain critics whose taste overlaps with yours, which means you will probably trust them a little bit more. Um, or they they point something out about a movie that you love that makes you love it even more. And so now it's not merely that you have the same taste. It's that. uh that they are willing to go deeper than than you were, and they can help you to appreciate something uh, more than you originally did. So there's a lot of ways to go about it. Rotten Tomatoes can be a really good place for that. You know, uh, you look at a movie and then you'd start looking at excerpts from these reviews and see what jumps out of you. Hmm. Um, so yeah, there's there are a lot of options. Uh, and there's not a guarantee that just because you like a critic, you're going to agree with them all the time. But chances are you'll see where they're coming from. Uh, speaking, you know, talking about Roger Ebert, uh, I'm thinking back to some big movies of the 80s, Blue Velvet and Full Metal Jacket. You know, many people consider those some of the best movies of that decade, if not of all time, uh, including Gene Siskel. But Ebert with Blue Velvet, he thought that the level of sexual type violence uh, mixed with that sort of weird David Lynch sense of humor, he thought that that was not a good mix and that it sort of cheapened the violence uh, against a, a female character. Mm. Uh, and then with Full Metal Jacket, he felt that as it was incredibly violent, but that it didn't bring anything new to the war genre. And so he thought, like, why am I watching this violence if I'm also not learning something? And so just looking at those and just how much he hated those slasher movies of the age, you come to realize, like, this is a guy that takes violence in film very seriously uh, and really uh, and is going to hold a movie to a high standard, whether it's a horror movie or a war movie directed by Stanley Kubrick. Like, and so when you if you know that that's almost whether he was aware of it or not, that was sort of a pet issue for him. And if it is one for you as well, then you found someone that's more than a critic you like. It's something of a kindred spirit. So, 
you know, and this and everything I just talked about takes a lot of time and there's going to be some guess and check. And every once in a while, a critic's going to recommend a movie that you're like, I don't get why they liked this at all. And I wish I could get my two hours back. Um, but then you can challenge yourself and say, I did not respond to this one bit, but this person that I normally trust did. So I'm going to try and step out of my comfort zone and see what it is they saw in this film. Um, and you might still not like it, but you'll, you will probably have a deeper appreciation for it. So, you know, that's a very long winded answer and it's not very definitive either. You know, oh, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of options out there. Yeah. It's a good starting off point though. It's a good, uh, you know, I don't know, compass to help us find yeah. good film. So thank you very much for being on. Uh, do you have stuff to plug? Uh, well, there's Battleship Pretension, which is always going strong. Um, <clears throat> there's more than one lesson, which I haven't done an episode for in a couple of weeks, unfortunately, at this time, uh, just because I'm very uh, I'm very busy. I'm transitioning into a new career uh, as a teacher. And so um, I've been teaching a college class and teaching some middle school classes and then more classes have been offered to me for next semester. So that has been taking up a lot of my time, but it's also been very fulfilling. It's fun to yeah. kind of take it's, it's a lot of the same principles as film criticism, but now it's on a, on a much more intimate personal basis with the, with the students. But, um, but yeah, so battleship pretension, you can check out the the website and the podcast. Uh, and then you can go to more than one lesson.com and, you know, check out stuff there there's a very deep catalog of episodes. So, you know, if you're looking for, if you're looking for a critic to, to start with, uh, I have said that I, I consider myself a very good gateway critic. Um, <laughs> there are people that write better than I do and people that think deeper than I do, but I think I'm a, I think I'm a good jumping off point. Yeah. I, I like your, uh, like you said, you're, I like how you write. I like the things that you look for in film and, you know, I'm, the stuff that you bring up is like fantastic. And I think that the collection of critics that you have for more than one lesson are great. And mm -hmm. um, also the book that you put out uh, worth watching. Oh, that's right. Yes, I do have, I forgot all about it. Yeah. Uh, yes. I have a book called worth watching and it's just a compilation of reviews and essays that I've written over the years. Uh, you can find that at worthwatchingbook.com. It's uh, $15. Uh, I only ship to the United States right now, but, uh, but yeah, so you can check that out. Yeah. Again, that, that's like a really great book to help you find what to look for in movies and, uh, you know, stuff to keep your eye, your eyes and ears open about. And I, I just really, really loved reading through that book. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So thank you very much for being on. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, and I recommend listening to those podcasts and reading those reviews. Those are great. All right. All right. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks. Bye, guys. Bye.